Hey everyone, welcome to Trends and Tings, where we bring you real chats on what's buzzing. On today's app, Stan, well, they're set to film a doco on the Port Arthur shooting. And look, as you can imagine, it's been a pretty mixed reaction to the news. So we chat about if it's fair game and why on earth people are so damn addicted to the true crime genre in general. So it's going to be a fun one and a very interesting one because I think there's been a lot of controversy around that whole news story. And secondly, it's retail therapy time, of course. Black Friday was recently. Now we've got Christmas sales so we're chatting about you know ethical gifting whether we should feel bad about over purchasing and you know just generally how we spend so much money on gifts at this time of the year as per usual joined by sydney lads gordon that's me scotty welcome mate it's been a week we've we, we didn't have an ep- a regular episode last week due to some you know we just got life got in the way a bit as it does every every now and then but um how's your your fortnight perhaps been yeah look it's um i feel like everyone might be in a similar boat feeling that end of year grind trying to get all these like bits and pieces finished before you kind of uh switch off for the year Mm. um so it's been good in the sense of like it's definitely much faster pace than probably the rest of the year and i think i can speak for most people to say i'd rather 2020 finish up as soon as possible (laughs) (laughs) and we looked to 2021 and whatever goodness it can bring us oh yeah and i mean look speaking of finishing 2021 a question for you were you happy with your spotify wrapped 2020 i mean oh. did it deliver because i know people get there like oh i don't really care about spotify wrapped or it's a bit whatever i like people i like seeing what everyone's listening to yeah look it, it gave me a lot of gems um apparently pop was my big um <laughs> big genre at the end someone who's like you know really into my you know a bit of maybe house music or mm. indie rock sort of stuff i didn't think pop would come through um, but clearly, I rinsed Dua Lipa's album so much, it just, it went right to the top. Um, but look, it's a gift, right? Because you kind of want to see a snapshot of your year. Um, and especially just playing tunes on that um, playlist that give you that back in January, I was vibing. Um, was like mm. a nice reminder of kind of how your music taste changes throughout the year. Um, so I enjoyed it. I, if anyone hates on it, I'm like, yeah, why? It's a great little <laughs> little gift for no for no cost. It's nice to have as well because you know, Hottest 100 voting is open now, and it's coming up to that period. So yes. it just gives you this list of 100 songs that you just rinsed all year. So you don't really <laughs> no effort required. But look, Scotty, let's move right along because we have some exciting news to announce on this week's episode. Of course, if you follow us on Instagram, we have our. Uh, one-year anniversary Mm -hmm. competition, Scotty, that's been going for the last few weeks. And we're about to draw the winner. The winner, of course, you and the person you tagged will both win a house, indoor house plant sent to your door, completely COVID safe, even though, you know, we're opening up the country and everything and mm-hmm. keep it legit. Um, and yes, we're going to pick and announce the winner right now, Scotty. So look, I've got all the names and a bit of a generator here. Let's do a bit of a drum roll to figure out who's going to win. It's pretty high tech. And the winner has come up on this terrible, terrible site to pick out random <laughs> names is Sheba George. Congratulations at Sheba's underscore underscore G. Uh, congratulations. And it looks like you have tagged Julia George underscore four uh, as your other nominee. So congrats, guys. We'll be in touch. We'll send you a little message on IG and sort that out for you. Thanks everyone else for getting involved. Again, it's been a great year and, you know, we thank you guys for supporting us over the past year. Scotty, the Mm. exciting news keeps on coming because in addition to this, we have a gem of an episode coming up this Thursday that perhaps many didn't expect. It's a bit of an, un- a bit of an un- you know, we didn't really have it in the, in the plan. It was something that came up and we did. And I think people are going to be excited. What is it? 
Yeah, look, I think we were lucky to sit down with Flex and Mommy again, our wonderful guest for an earlier Real Chats episode. And this time we decided to have a little bit of fun, kind of unwind for the end of the year and played her iconic card game, mm. Reflex. You know, you've got stuff like Cards Against Humanity. And I think this is definitely creeping into that territory where you can have a lot of fun because it asked some really interesting questions. It's not just, you know, shits and geeks. Um, I found it interesting, our responses, like just three people, mm. even though we had very similar experiences, but it's different takes on the questions that um, I didn't think would go there sort of thing. Oh, yeah. So a nice little nugget for everyone to wrap up the year. Um, and we definitely appreciate Flex for spending a little bit more time with us on a, a great real chat app. Absolutely. Well, look, stay tuned Thursday. It'll be out and it'll be on all the, <clears throat> excuse me, as I'm about to croak into to death here. Um, <laughs> it will be out on all the usual uh, places and on our socials. So keep an eye out. Scotty, let's move right along. The real chats, of course, is now done for the year, basically. We're going to do yes. some episodes of our own later on. But Mad Ting time, uh, you know, for those of you listening for the first time, Mad Ting, is it, is it, you know, fun or interesting or notable, positive, usually, I like to say, moments? Scotty, what's yours this week? Yeah, look, I attended my first in-person gig uh, oh. over the weekend, which was such Madness. a delight. It was um, seeing Sydney artist Andy Bull, which I think I mentioned a few weeks back I bought tickets for. And I've forgotten what you miss with a like a live gig. You know, of course you can rinse the recorded stuff, but you don't get like, you don't get the banter, you don't get like mm. the background for the tracks. You know, um, Andy was very like, it was a very stripped back show. So just even hearing different renditions of music he wrote, um, everything about that experience felt very novel. You know, I was like, oh, I haven't mm. done this in about a year. It's fresh. Yeah, 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 It's super fresh. Um, and, you know, we see more gigs creeping up throughout, you know, the rest of this year and next year. I think it's changing my perspective on live music. I think maybe before COVID, we had a bit of fatigue. You know, there's gigs everywhere. Do I really want to go? I can just see that person, you know, mm. at this festival or that, this gig sort of thing. But I'm not going to take that for advantage because clearly something like a pandemic will throw us into work and <laughs> you have a whole year without gigs. Uh, so definitely appreciate the experience. Nice, definitely. Um, it was a nice thing to unwind and definitely want to buy more tickets to gigs as soon oh, as I can. Frothing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Frothing. Love that. What about you, Gord? What was your matting for the week? My matting is a bit more public. It's in, it was a, it was a great moment. I thought in the, um, the Wallabies, the you know Australian national rugby team, they haven't had a great yes. time of it this year in terms of their actual form. But there was a great moment during the or, or when the national anthem took place during the game on the weekend against Argentina, uh, where the Australian national anthem was sung, of course, in the Yora language of the Gadigal people uh, in, from Sydney, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. I saw it. I didn't know this was happening. I'm, I'm sort of shocked that I didn't. I can't believe there wasn't more sort of doc, like talk about this. Um, so it sort of caught me off guard, which was sort of good in a way because it, I copped it quite unadulted in a quite mm. a quite raw way. So um, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was great. I thought it was obviously good to see, you know, both all, all types of different players in the team. You know, there'd be sort of white Caucasian players or Pacifica or, you know, Indigenous, First Nations, uh, you know, all types of um, different players in the team all singing both verses, you know, in, in both languages, um, which was great. And I know, look, it's obviously been a little bit controversial because, you know, the Yoruba language is only a certain dialect in New South Wales and Sydney. Um, and, you know, there's talk about, okay, well, if they have a game up in Brisbane or if they have a game in Perth, like, will they sing 
the language of, you know, one of the local languages to that state mm-hmm. or that city. So it'll be interesting to see how it, how it develops from here. But I thought it was a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, we spoke about the names of, um, or the, the words rather of the national anthem a few weeks ago on an episode. And I still stand by that. Like, I think it's still worth a discussion around the actual meaning and mm-hmm. you know i i definitely don't think this is like a, oh yeah cool let's <laughs> do one of the verses in in your language and everything solved i think this is just a good step in the right direction uh what did you make of it yeah look i caught the artist uh i think olivia fox is a name from mm. newtown and uh, look beautiful rendition i thought like great representation of like a native tongue and uh, the Aussie verse, I thought it was really great. I saw that all the Wallaby uh, members had learnt the mm. language beforehand as yeah, well. So yeah, that's yeah. a very symbolic gesture as well. And I think what it also did, it detracted nothing from the game. Like it was, you know, it was a very nice gesture that kicked off the game, but it didn't change the tone of anything afterwards. You know, it, was, it felt like it belonged um, respecting the languages. So I think, it, I hope it becomes common practice because. Um, you know, we've had this very long chat around the national anthem and the identity of it um, for Australians. And I think this gesture obviously is more representative of the people who are here well before any of us. So let's yeah. keep doing it, I think. Let's, let's keep the movement going. Great to see. And hopefully it continues heading into the new year. Scotty, let's move along uh, to sort of what we're vibing territory. You've got a couple of suggestions this week. What do you got for us? Yeah, look, two tracks and a YouTube video, which might be a first Oof, for our series. It might be. <laughs> uh, but let, let me jump into the tracks first. The first one is Falling Apart and a single by Young Franco. Oh, yes. Featuring Denzel Curry and Pell. And, like, it's just a, not a collaboration I expected to come out. Um, it's a real short track, though, like two minutes. Mm. I think clocking in two minutes, but it's not time wasted. It's got a real groove to it. Um, the bass of the track simp- uh, samples a 1984 track called Things Fall Apart by Steve Bonnet and uh, Denzel and Pell drop these really good bars over the top of the track. So like I said, really short, really concise, mm. um, but it's just got this really nice groove to it. I yeah, easily track. rinsed it, easily repeat it. Uh, the next one is 911, which is originally a single by Lady Gaga, but this mm. is remixed by um, UK house producer uh, Weiss, I believe that's how it's pronounced. The original track itself is already a great pop track, but it's um, it's a bit slow, a bit mellow. It's a good electro pop, but, you know, mm. uh, steady, steady pace. And what Weiss does here is kind of picks up the tempo a bit um, and gives it that kind of house treatment. So you hear more of a piano melody in the track, more pronounced hi-hats and more beats coming through. And it's a really smooth house track. It's not really mm. reliant on you know, deep drops and build it up to kind of get you going. It's just a really stable, static track. Yeah, nice. Um, which is very in line with, I think, the Wii sound. So definitely give that a listen. And as for the YouTube video of this week, it's uh, a series called Comedy Actors Roundtable, which the Hollywood Reporter do. And this particular mm. episode, um, back from 2019, features artists like uh, Jim Carrey, Ted Danson, Sasha Baron Cohen, <laughs> and Don Chettle and it's just a really intriguing video having these heavyweight um, comics sit down and talk about their identity and talk about the purpose of their art um, as if they're very vulnerable people so you kind of mm. see them as like heavyweights in the scene but they're just the average blokes you know the average people going through yeah. um, needing that um, justification for their art and that validation from 
um, seeing their success come up, but then also trying to manage that success, personal life sort of thing. So very, some very like, you know, day-to-day struggles that you can relate to and other things that you, you um, it makes you wonder how you perceive these celebrities because you think, oh, they just get all the glitz and glam and, and attention, mm. but there's some vulnerability that they feel behind that. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, I've seen that doing the rounds as well. For yeah. Like it's been popping up here and there for sure. Yeah, look, if you've got an easy hour to sit down, it's it's just really insightful to draw from their sort of like candid chat about their experiences. Um, so give that a watch if you can. But Gord, I know you've got a few mm. tracks for us as well. What's uh, yeah. on your radar this week? Yeah, i got t- two tracks here. Uh, the first is called See You There. It's by an, uh, an artist called Castell featuring Kane and Lonsdale. Now, Castell is one of those Discover Weekly, Spotify, random artists that just what pops up. Uh, and you're like, yeah, literally, what a gem. It, it's just one of those unexpected, haven't really heard of the artist before. And <laughs> what I loved is, you know, in my Spotify wrapped, house was my was my genre, if you like, popular genre. Mm. No surprise with Disclosure being the, the number one act <laughs> of mine. But, you know, what I liked about uh, Castell and his Spotify description was just it was literally just elegant house music that was how he described himself Perfect. Uh, and it's just it's just classic summary very chill soulful yet sort of upbeat and like i said yeah kane and lonsdale who's on the vocal of the track uh he, he you know it's it's got classic sort of urban soulful vocal um mm. but like i said also quite upbeat so definitely check out castell he's got another track called uh woodpecker which is good as well um so he's one of my you know new finds of recent memory then i've also got a new one here from your boy b wise he's been off off radar for a little bit mm. i think over nearly two years now his last track coming out in 2018 um and he's come back hard he's got a track called won't stop featuring one four who just go from strength to strength at the moment uh and look i'm continually digging one four like when they first sort of mm. broke through i was a bit unsure i don't know if i picked if i was vibing it or not and as I've listened to more of it, the uniqueness, obviously, you know, we talk so much about Australian accents and how they come across so differently in Aussie hip hop. You think about like Hilltop Hoods, Illy, Remy, uh, you know, Sampa the Great. You can yeah. sort of name so many. And I think the, the, the exciting thing about One Four is they bring a different element to, to the rap scene in Australia, which is unique and interesting. And, you know, they've got a great, you know, very, I think, intriguing story, right, behind them as a, as a group. So definitely peep that one out, a new one from BYs and One Four. And then lastly, uh, I did want to mention as well is is a, a show that I saw on stand. It's technically a show. It's more of a reunion. And it was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air reunion special oh, on yes. Stan. Um, of course, we know the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is getting this sort of new modern day makeover into a short series soon. And I think they're just pumping up the hype for it. Mm. So, you know, obviously the old cast of the Fresh Prince got together at the old set um, and sort of went through some of the crazy moments of the show, the, you know, laughs, cries, like all of it in between. And I don't know about you, Scotty, but I was definitely someone who, that when I was growing up, you know, late high school and, you know, even, even early high school, I would say, I would just, this was my show. And I remember having like two seasons on like some pirate copy from my cousin or something. <laughs> so I would just watch, rewatch That's and rewatch the first two seasons for like years. So this, it was, it was definitely a show that stood, uh, stood with me a little bit. And, you know, we know about uncle Phil and how, you know, James Avery, the, the actor who played him, you know, sadly mm. passed away a few years ago and they touch on that. And, and, you know, a bunch of things like the, the sort of controversy between Will and Aunt Viv, uh, you know, Carol Parsons, uh, Karen Parsons, who was the original Aunt Viv and how they sort of settled that whole debacle now. So yeah, it was good and definitely worth a watch. So yeah, look, Scotty, quite a decent little range of stuff there. Where can people check this out if they want to give it a watch or a listen? 
Yeah, look, if you dig any of our music recommendations, make sure you jump on Spotify and check out Trends and Tings, What We're Vibing. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Trends and Tings or on Facebook, Trends and Tings Podcast Crew, where we'll share a link tree that has the whole raft of recommendations from our episodes. Scotty, okay, topic one for this week is a very interesting one, I think, all around. So as you might know, and as you, know, you, you guys listening might have heard, Stan, who are, I think, doing really well of recent times, they've been building steadily like a really great uh, you know, library of content uh, mm-hmm. as a streamer. Um, they've announced that they're you know, going to be producing an original film called Nitram, uh, currently in production. Uh, you know, it's from Australian director Justin Kurzel uh, and writer Sean Grant. Uh, and basically, to read you, I got a PR uh, through work about this and, and, you know, sort of to get a bit of an insight into what it's all about. Uh, and when it when it came into my inbox, it's sort of based, I'll read a little bit off the exact PR. It says, Nutrium is a study of one of the darkest chapters in Australian history. It's a scripted feature film that looks at the events leading up to one of the darkest chapters in Australian history uh, in an attempt to understand why and how this atrocity occurred. And as soon mm-hmm. as I heard that i was like holy shit they're making like a like a captain cook you know dark documentary or something i was like this is what it's going to be uh and they really went out of their way to sort of not make a direct reference to the tragedy in this instance being the port arthur oh sorry port arthur shooting um and eventually obviously i did some research found out exactly you know what it means and stuff like that and so nitrim is sort of like you know the backwards spelling of of the first name of the killer uh, of the shooter um and you know as you can imagine this has generated all types of mixed response and mixed reaction uh you know with many locals especially from tasmania saying this is crazy like there's so many people Mm. still affected by this and you know from what i've read online like tasmania you know i haven't been there myself but a lot of people saying it's got a real small town feel like you know everyone sort of knows everyone quite closely uh you know especially in the key key cities like hobart and stuff like that um and they said a lot of people know you know still attached to that because it wasn't technically that long ago um you know whether it be the the families of the victims you know or you know uh people who were in the you know response in terms of like ambulance Mm. teams and police um right through to the politicians and you know just everyday people who, who experience that news um so you know they're worried that it's going to obviously glorify the murderer as well. So it's a bit of an interesting one. And there's, they, I want to get into a few different uh, little arguments on, on both sides of it. But yeah, Scotty, you, you, I'm sure you would have caught this one. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your gut feel reaction to, to sort of this to kick it off? I'm, I'm not a fan is, is the biggest thing. I think, um, I guess, yeah, the PR spin being one of the darkest times in Australian history is quite like apt for this sort of thing because there's only about I think 25 years that this incident occurred and um, quite a lot of people I think um, lost their lives and were injured and it was a mixed bag of people as well there were Australians there were tourists um, mm. you know yeah, so kids, it's, as well, I think. kids yeah and some when you uh, I had to read into it a little bit as well before today's episode and some of the gruesome acts that the um, killer did is just I don't know how you would um, touch the subject matter without potentially making this triggering for people connected to the incident. And I know the director said um, in a few of the interviews, he said that he's never featured murder in any of his films. He's quite known for doing, um, I think he did a, a previous film about a South Australia serial killer. Uh, and I think he did a film on Ned Kelly as well. So he's sort of dabbled into that Australian mm. crime sort of genre and he's made a kind of pact 
or promise, sorry, to not really feature the murder. But I think even without featuring murder on screen, you're still going to throw in elements that will unsettle people. Um, and so I wonder what the motivation is to mm. produce a film like this. Is it because you want to tell a story that might try and inform people and try and, um, you know, make the world a better place? Or is it a sort of this ride, this wave of true crime and kind of gritty content that people are loving at the moment and you're just like, well, this is a good, in a way, maybe exploitation of that kind of um, genre that's coming out at the moment? You can't say it's not. I, it might be. I mean, it has to be mm. some form of exploitation, even if it's not. I don't think maybe that doesn't mean the story shouldn't be told in that capacity, perhaps. But I think you have to look at it and go, okay, if, if you're going purely on exploitation, you probably say it is, right? Because mm. you're telling a story which will no doubt for some people bring up, you know, uh, recollections of PTSD uh, for people who have been directly involved. Or like, to be honest, you don't even need to be directly involved in some of this stuff, right? Like if you were part of the, it, you know, you didn't need to be directly connected to the 9-11, uh, you know, tragedy mm. to feel like you were impacted, right? So, um, you know, and I think it's interesting, right, because if you look at 9-11, whilst we've seen some, uh, oh, that's obviously one of the biggest tragedies and, and, you know, terrorism events to ever happen in the history of the world. Yeah. Um, but, and I saw a few people talking about this online in regards to Port Arthur, right? They're, they made some points on, on your side of the argument to say it's probably not something we should look at in regards to, you know, number one, the killer is still in, alive and in jail. Mm. Um, you know, it's still relatively recent. So, you know, a lot of the family that were involved or friends and, and you know, relatives connected to the event probably still living uh, and still will, you know, occur or will still be impacted by this whole thing. Uh, mm. And that, you know, also, again, just the, one of the main points being, does this story need to be told? Like, you know, you'll see a lot of, I guess, arguments on the other side saying, okay, well, it gives exposure into the, you know, the tragedy that happened. It talks about things like gun uh, or gives perception, um, rather, what's what I'm looking for here? It gives... Um, yeah, perspective on on Correct. sort of like gun laws and stuff like that, uh, whilst also you know looking into sort of the psychotic nature of of the killer, um, yeah. and you know I guess trying to flag some sort of potential red flags or behavior traits. And I was like, okay, like eh, maybe, but it, there's yeah. a it's very interesting. Yeah, look, the only thing I was going to say is um, the director came out and because I think when they revealed the cast, the lead actor is a American. And mm. one of the comments he made was, we couldn't find an Australian actor oh to take God. the job sort of thing. So I think that's also like a telling sign that, you know, if you have Aussie uh, actors who kind of respect their career and probably don't want to touch this project, mm. it might be like an indicator that you're going down a path um, you probably shouldn't, you know? so um, it, it will be interesting, right? Because this is got the, the considering that the, I think if you have to pick a way in terms of how the response has gone down, it's probably gone mm. down more negative, even though some Correct. people are interested in, in this, you know, some people no doubt are interested in the, in the story. And I'm sure if and when it comes out, it will probably be watched by, by quite a few people, but it does make mm -hmm. me wonder because, because it's been so negative. We've seen in recent times, some companies and production houses. I remember, you know, the Sonic, uh, you know, movie that was meant to come, oh, yes. it did come out. And, you know, that first image that came out of, of the character was so unlike the cartoon that people just revolted and eventually got their way, right? Like they basically bullied the, the studio into <laughs> yeah. changing the film. Uh, and I, it sort of makes me, obviously that's, we're talking about two different types of scenarios here, but 
it does make me wonder, and I'm keen to get your thoughts, Scotty, could we see this? Do you reckon it's possible that they could just go, okay, there's too much negativity around this. This is not going to be a win for Stan, you know, or is it a bit of a all PR sort of good PR here? I think it's it's definitely one of those, any PR generated around this will be positive because it's, it's Stan committing to their local content quota or like commitment sort of thing. It's such a polarizing topic that you definitely have as many people you have on the negative side, you have people on the positive side saying, oh, you know, it's going to give us insight into the, uh, the criminals' um, motivations and give us insight into how to avoid this in the future. I think the writer came out and said, um, like, evil repeats itself, so we need to figure out how to tell the signs and avoid a potential, you know, like, killer of that degree emerging again in our country. So I guess mm. that's the motivation for having this film. I... I think they've already they've already started to film. I, I know they're in Vic at the moment, and I think so much has already been laid down for this to pull the plug on the project. I think Stan would, because I, I imagine Stan's probably funding a good chunk of it. They have such a financial commitment; they wouldn't, unless it was maybe a victim's family, like something that's very definitely you have to say no and close this mm. project. I think public criticism is fine, but if it's family members, which there are Tasmanian community coming out to say you shouldn't make this film. Um, but it, obviously that's not strong enough to stop this project. So I don't think anything is at this stage. Yeah, I, it probably unlikely, right? At this, yeah, like you said, at this point, they probably filmed a lot, probably locked in cast. They would have surely forecasted some type of reaction like this as well. So probably unlikely to happen. Mm. Um, but, you know, as we sort of walk through, it does make me sort of start to think, okay, well, you know, I would say that, you know, personally, like I'm – like I feel like I, my opinion doesn't really matter because, for example, whilst I am, a, I, I watch plenty of true crime. We've talked about this mm. on this podcast. Um, you know, I'm also not connected to any of the victims of, of the event or, uh, you know, sorry, or any of the families of the victims. Uh, I'm not connected to really anything directly rather than being consumer of the news. Uh, and I feel like the, the major response from, from the families, like you said, has been, overwhelmingly disappointed in the fact that the, the thing is being shot, the film is being mm-hmm. shot. So my my default is to sort of go, okay, well, I'll back them because they're the ones, as much as you can say, oh, just don't watch the show um, yep. when it comes out. Stan will no doubt have heaps of advertising on billboards all around the country. There'll be sponsored ads on social media. Uh, yeah, I feel like you won't be able, you you know it's on. Like it won't just be, I don't. if you're not interested, don't watch it. Yeah, I definitely feel like, I mean, the reality is it's something you're going to do in the privacy of your own home. So if you watch it, he's going to call you up and say, oh, mate, I can't believe you actually watched this film sort of thing. Yeah. I, think, I think the curiosity will drive most people to watch this because, um, I mean, the credit is this is a very interesting topic because it did lead to the largest gun reform in our mm. country and, you know, it produced positive outcomes in terms of preventing um, future massacres. So that's the probably only silver lining you can see in a project like this. Um, but in saying that, there are still people, like 25 years is still fresh for like, young families or people connected oh, yeah. to the incident. Um, this will potentially have very like catastrophic like mental breakdowns and um, mental instability for them just because it's so close to them. And I, and I don't know if that's worth having a project like this unless, uh, you know, again, unless they can handle this with enough sensitivity, which um, not being a creative director myself, I wouldn't be sure how they would go about that. 
Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I would I would have liked to have seen more of, and who knows, maybe now that they've announced it and got a bit of negative feedback, mm. is just a bit. It's uh, speaking as someone you know with no ties to this project at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it feels like it to me like they haven't really touch base with the, the community and the people directly associated with this film, you know, with this incident, the Port, mm. Port Arthur shooting, because, you know, and to give one example, we, we mentioned the Wallabies before and how they did, you know, the, the anthem and sung it uh, one verse in the oral language. I'm sure there would have been some discourse, right, between Indigenous locals in Sydney and, you know, how they went about doing that correctly. Yeah, definitely. Um, in the same way, I was a big fan of um, Cricket Australia's barefoot uh I think called Barefoot Circle, where they had basically before some of the cricket games this summer, they basically, both the Indian and Australian cricket team who were playing each other at the moment in Australia, they walked out onto the field barefoot with the idea of it being, you know, you connect with the land, mm. you, you know, and it, it was basically a response to um, sort of the Black Lives Matter movement, right? They were like, oh, do we take a knee before the games? Do we do something a bit more personal? And they consulted like Adam Goods and local community members and stuff like that. And obviously from that, they came out with this idea, which was mm. let's go. And I thought that was great. Like, you know, okay, again, it's not the solving the problem, but it was just a step in the right direction. It was it was consulting the community that this would in, impact the most and then making a conscious decision based on that. Um, but like I said, maybe they did. Maybe they did contact people, you know, in the making of this film early days to check, you know, mm. how they could do it. But it does make me go, oh, perhaps they could have done it better and, and you know, had some more discussions with, with this community. Yeah, look, I, I know the, this film is definitely going to centre around, like, the, the moments that led up to the incident sort of thing. So mm. I guess it is definitely, it will be, sorry, be interesting to see um, how much focuses on the Port Arthur incident itself and how much is it just, you know, the guy growing up and his family life and stuff like that. Um, Cause you know, um, reading into his life sort of thing, there are elements of um, mental health issues in his family and, you know, his, um, his father, I think um, committed suicide because of a tragic event sort of thing. So mm. the thing that I worry about that kind of thing is it humanizes the murderer too much that you sympathize with them. And yeah. I don't know if this is a person worthy of sympathy as well. So that's, oh, that's, sure. that's the other thing I don't particularly um, back in terms of this film is, sure, you might not touch on the massacre, but then if you're purely making a film about this person, are you going to make it so that everyone hates this person more or are you going to try and have people show sympathy for this person because of their, their upbringing? <clears throat> Sorry, because of their upbringing and in some way potentially justify why they did what they did because they were like quote broken individual. Yeah. Well, this is, this is all part of a, a bigger discussion in terms of true crime as a genre, right? Humanizing oh, the, yeah. the villain or, you know, all this type of this stuff. And that's what I sort of want to talk about in terms of this topic, because for example, if you're technically, and I mean, I'm, I, it could be wrong here, Scotty, so you can fact check mm. me, but I, if you <laughs> technically are not a fan of this, if you're not a fan of the Port Arthur documentary or doco mm. film, surely then that means you can't really be pro true crime as a genre, right? Because by default, true crime, there's a crime fucking involved. So someone has been, has been impacted by a true crime that has been committed on, on a victim. Right. So if by then that standard, you know, you'd look at something like the Ted Bundy murders or Mm. so many other, if the various types of true crime things that we've seen out there in the world, surely then you go, okay, well, 
they're always victims associated. They're always families associated. Should true, like, firstly, why the heck are we so into it? And then number two, can you really be, is, is it sort of like an all or one situation? Can you either be a true crime? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm a fan of it. and I'm keen to mm. learn more and type, I'm interested. Or is it like, all right, well, if you disagree with, with one true crime situation, you sort of have to disagree with all of them because it impacts different people in different ways, right? Yeah, look, the the true crime genre has always been mind-boggling to me just because I've never been a, a huge fan of it. But I can kind of see why people get behind it because it it nitpicks the sort of like mentality of someone who, you know, is sort of deemed like a social outcast or like different from everyone else. And so by learning why they did sort of, uh, why they did certain actions, you kind of feel like enlightened in a way. You're like, oh, you know, I can... I can now tell the telltale signs of a murderer. They're X, Y, Z. They fall in this category. Mm. And now I'm more like knowledgeable about this topic. Um, but I don't, yeah, I think like, I, I don't see the, um, the true, like, I guess, motivation to invest time and energy into learning these things because like, what are you going to do as a average Joe Blow living on like your daily lives? Are you now hunting for, murderers and trying to prevent future yeah. crimes or is it you know the uh, like law enforcement detectives and those people who are kind of on the radar for the, things like that like you being super adapt at uh, adept at um finding true crime stuff doesn't make you then like the next sherlock holmes oh of I course think. and i was looking into this a bit more because i was thinking all right well, well even though i'm in like i watch plenty of true crime i'm like mm-hmm. why is it why do i find it so addictive and, and what yeah. is the psychology behind it and i found a few interesting quotes from different types of academics and stuff uh which i thought i'd read out and the first one here i think is is really poignant i think probably made stood out to me the most it's from a psychologist uh named dr meg uh, uh, sorry dr meg arrow uh, and she says, uh, true crime stories allow us to explore the darker side of nature in a safe way, mm. which I think is pretty, pretty on point. Like you think about sort of even horror films and stuff where like, you know, murders are committed and it's a bit crazy and stuff like it's ultimately it's in a safe environment, right? Like you get to mm. experience almost like a fly in the wall, what happened because it's naturally interesting, right? In a, in a, in a crazy and creepy way, but you're not actually part of it. You get to watch from a distance and yeah. You know, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then there was this, there was some more quotes here from Rachel Franks, who's the conjoint fellow at the University of Newcastle School of Humanities and Social Science. She says it's all part of human nature to be interested in true crime. She says, in a sense, crime is timeless. It's something that we can we think can impact everybody. And now that it's so easy to consume and distribute, it validates those conversations and interests. She says people crave some sort of resolution as well, which can be found in the crime genre. So, you know, you're, you're always looking for an answer about who did it or, you know, why they did it. Or even if sometimes, you know, the whole crime is beyond anyone's like, you know, it goes way beyond your perspective in terms of what you think Mm. it could even be. It's so crazy. Um, and the, uh, finally here, Jeff Pope, who's the head of factual drama at ITV, um, he was sort of talking about um, how true crimes are so popular because they're never predictable, right? Which I think is fair. Like, you know, if you, if you watch a, uh, a, like a crime film or a, or a, you know, a horror film like we're talking about, it normally ties itself in a knot at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, okay, yeah. it's a bit scary and, it, you know, something bad happened, but normally the killer gets caught or, you know, dies or, or it gets tied up nicely like at the formula. end. 
Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a little schedule of things to hit as they go through the movie. But with true crime, it's, it's you know, literally can be, you know, maybe they haven't caught the killer yet or maybe there is a, a crazy, ex- like, ending that you would never expect. Mm. Uh, and, and there's that need. So you can it's, – it's interesting, right? Like, you start to go into some of these psychological reasons for why true crime becomes addictive to consume. I mean, you know, there's podcasts, documentaries – you know, TV specials, Everything. films, yeah. like it's, it's probably one of, if not the most popular genre in terms of like modern entertainment, I would say. So what do you make about all this? What do you, do you think it's legit? Do you think these psycho- psychological reasons are, are fair or do you think, you know, obviously you mentioned you're not a massive fan of the genre. So give me your insight on this. Yeah. Look, I mean, I just think the the fact of categorizing it as entertainment, as in then it's for your enjoyment, is always thing that doesn't sit right with me. Like you know, mm. because true crime, yeah, like you said, they are based in fact and reality. There are things that have happened and people have suffered or experienced loss, and we're now um, observing it and sort of digesting it as like an entertainment um, platform. So that's never really sat well with me. But I do understand the appeal for it because we like watching a challenge unfold as well you know like um either the police force gathering sorry gathering the, uh, the evidence and finally solving the crime you kind of like mm. that that night neat bow um that kind of wraps up the case um and i guess it is yeah because it's not predictable it explores parts of human nature that you and i don't experience day to day because we are all a bit we're a bit uniform we have our habits mm. we have our things that we do routine that typically, I guess, a murderer doesn't. That's why they kind of break <laughs> out and, um, you know, people find that interesting. So I think my, I think as an uh, informative thing, I think that's fine because, uh, sure, we can learn and understand traits and trends that come from these true crime things. But as like an entertainment resource, I don't know. I don't, if you were to derive some sort of pleasure from true crime, I'm, I'm not sure if that's particularly great is yeah. where I kind of sit. I think that's fair. I think a lot of people, it's not a necessary, whilst it's a popular genre, I think some mm-hmm. people tend to not either be a fan or, or not sort of be into it at all. And it's I think the, polarizing. It is polarizing. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that sort of settles it for me in terms of like a closing point on this is that the best, I think, true crime stuff that I've seen, like I'm a big fan um, of Unsolved Mysteries, I thing I mentioned on this podcast before mm-hmm. on Netflix, but some of the best ones, I think, in my opinion, they're often engaged, like I said, they, they speak to the family that have maybe been involved with, uh, you know, a, a, a relative or something that's gone missing or been part of a crime. So the, it's, it's often a, a, an expression to call out for, for more information or for help, or mm. they want to tell their story because they feel like it might help someone or, or give someone something. Whilst with this, you know, bringing back to the, the Port Arthur, you know, documentary film that's being released, it feels like it's maybe just being done as a bit of entertainment for for a bit of shock value and for a bit of commercial reasons, perhaps. So I think when it comes to true crime, the best way I think to go about it is to really, you know, I, I like stuff that is made with, you know, not necessarily always permissions, but like, you know, at least giving people the right to be involved in the process because then it becomes, you know, less about glorifying any type of victim and more about, you know, the families and people and, and victims that were lost during it. Records for topic number two. I want to delve into the holiday season because obviously it's uh, a good opportunity for us to spend a bit of money. Mm, um, obviously, Black Friday sales had just finished, but uh, here in Australia we've got Christmas, Boxing Day, New Year's. It's um, 
it's just never an end to um, the amount of money you can spend on gifts and, and gadgets. Mm, but considering we're entering this period of time, a few things have popped up that I kind of want to bring to our radar and maybe have a chat around how we look at spending over this holiday period and if we are maybe inspired to do anything a little mm. bit different. Okay. The, um, the first thing I want to mention does relate to the Black Friday um, sale period, which there was an economist, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, who launched this campaign called Make Amazon Pain, uh, mm. Pay, sorry. Um, essentially asking people to boycott the company just for one day. So not a big ask. Mm. Um, and this is back off the back, the company uh, reporting earnings throughout the pandemic. So uh, Jeff Bezos uh, increased his wealth by $70 oh, yeah. billion. Dollars. Fucking every day uh, it was going up by fucking it's just, billions and millions. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's going to like a ridiculous amount of money. I think he's already like, he's literally like, worth i think nearly 190 billion dollars it's it's like a number that is not feasible for everyone else but um look so the whole part of the campaign was um not only is amazon of course making money but they're exploiting their workers they they engage in practices that destroy small businesses and mm. wipe out competition and it's essentially becoming this like kingdom sort of thing you know like they maintain all the riches and then all the employees or you're guessing the peasants if you were Mm. back in a (laughs) medieval time basically get nothing and so it's not a practice that we should kind of keep backing um it's still quite early to see if they've had an impact from the boycott i mean you see a lot of social media presence um so uh, social media action but you also hear that uh this black friday sale was one of the biggest on year so you know people are still spending money oh, and yeah. may not engage in the um in the boycott which it we'll felt see. big I mean, this it, year as well it felt big like um, like yeah. i don't know if it's just the pandemic and people were wanting some retail therapy but mm-hmm. man it felt like there was some some serious buying going on uh, over this one <laughs> Um, yeah, look, they definitely rinse. I guess you're not going anywhere to travel, so you might as well spend that extra money yeah. on, on a new gift. So, look, that's one small thing that's happens that's sort of um, aimed to increase our sort of like social consciousness. The second thing, which is back at home here in Australia, is um, in 2018 we had this Modern Slavery Act, which did a few things. Uh, the first thing that we saw that's quite tangible here is a repository of modern slavery statements. Um, sounds a bit wordy, but all it really is is any company that earns over um, $100 million in terms of turnover, they need to give a report, and that report says, uh, as a company, we're aware that there are some practices in our supply chain that um, are tied into modern slavery, so it might be mm. low wages, it might be some very shitty yeah. practices. Gotcha. And they've got to re- release a report that says, we've identified these things, and this is how we're going to combat them. So the first round of those reports came out in uh, just this month. 121 statements were given by companies and about 20 or like, yeah, maybe 20 of them were voluntary um, statements because they want to kind of back this movement. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, it's listed on a government website. It's not easy to access. There's no, you know, there are no spark notes. There are no highlights (laughs) that kind of give you the gist of what's going on per company. So as a consumer, you're probably not going to spend the time going through each report. You're not going to find that. Um, It's definitely a proud moment for, I think, us as a country because we've, it's a world first that we've sort of led. Um, But 
basically there's no accountability. So there's no penalties or any kind of recourse um, that will happen if a company does not follow the recommendations outlined in the report. Um, but what these two instances, what these two examples kind of show is this shifting narrative in terms of instilling a bit more social consciousness into how we shop and maybe looking at that over the holiday period. So I guess maybe the thing I want to lead with is, um, to put, you know, it's been quite a, a dramatic and crazy year. Have you sort of maybe shifted how you've approached gift giving and holiday, and holiday purchasing this year? Or is, are you kind of aligned with previous years for yourself? Mm, yeah, I'm not sure. Like I feel for me, I've, I've always been a big gifter as well. Like I've always liked, yeah, yeah. I've always liked the idea of, you know, we talk about like people talk about like lo- your love language and shit like that. I know gifting mm. is one of them. I feel like for me, it's more giving gifts. Like I don't, I obviously like getting gifts like any other person that lives and has a pulse, but you yeah. know, giving gifts, I feel like is more, I've always liked it since I was quite young because it's like, I prefer curating something nice or actually putting some thought into something or, you know, just that whole process and the joy you can give someone. So Mm -hmm. I've always been big on gifting. Let's start with that. Now, I think in terms of this year and everything, like, I mean, look, I feel like, and I'll be honest, it's always hard to, to resist when you see some of the sales going on, like, you know, 60, 70% off some brands that normally never do sales or just brands that do do sales, but it's just almost like, you know, it feels too good to give up and stuff like that. So I'd be lying if I said I wasn't interested or I hadn't been paying attention or that I didn't even make some purchases myself. So Mm -hmm. I think it would be naive to say that I'm just going from like, oh yeah, cool. I'd like to do more, but not doing as much as I can when it comes to giving, (laughs) you know, you know, making smarter, better ethical decisions around gifts. Um, I'll draw the line at some places, like for example, some fast fashion brands that it's like, it's like 90% off and you're buying like a, you know, a t-shirt for a dollar or something like that. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay, that's probably where I definitely, definitely, definitely draw the line here. And um, I think now in terms of gift giving, I think it's, you know, I, I, I try to look for things that will be at least a little bit more subconsciously, uh, sorry, less subconsciously that are actually going to be, smarter gifts or, or yeah. you know contribute to the environment a bit better or you know whatever but like you said like again i feel like i'd be lying if i said i'm going onto the government websites and and reading all the finance doing a proper research on the company before i buy a product you know what i mean like for example if i'm looking at buying someone i don't know like a te- like a coffee machine right like i'm probably mm-hmm. Will I look at the, you know, where it's made and the ethics around it? Maybe. But will I also probably still purchase it if it's a good price at the right time? Probably also, probably. yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like it's definitely hard with some items that they, there hasn't been a growth in like sustainable. Like you can't buy a sustainable iPhone. Or yeah, like, yeah. Like I feel like electronics are very hard territory because I, you know, I've quite made a conscious um, choice of, not buying new this year. So, you know, typically go for op shops and you, so you're not doing fast fashion sort of stuff and maybe dabbling on Facebook marketplace. But I always find like electro, uh, electronics hard to buy secondhand because one small fault, like, you know, uh, a battery doesn't work properly or this particular like microchip doesn't work and the whole thing's written off. And mm. so I think um, that's something trying for me to reconcile is I will always probably buy those things brand new because I know... Ah they're not going to come with faults. Um, but in terms of my own personal gift giving, I think, and I think, you know, there's definitely a balance, but I guess part of that balance is understanding your process and maybe increasing your scope. So 
you know, back when I first earned money, I'd probably just go straight to Westfield and jump into a Maya and they have, they have everything I need sorted. Don't really need to worry there. But I think now you kind of increase the scope. You might look at, um, personally, I'm not a big Etsy person, but you know, I guess Etsy is really good if you want to support local, uh, creators and local craftspeople. Mm. Um, I've been trying to find some more sustainable brands that kind of, um, essentially make the same product that I would um, purchase. Like cosmetics, I think are a good thing in terms mm. of there are definitely some great um, sustainable products coming up in there and you can still give a good gift that people would appreciate. Um, but I think, and even clothing is really good in terms of this, the, sorry, clothing is really good in terms of the sustainable lens because it's definitely people who either work with First Nations people to represent their art in terms of fashion um, or they help marginalized communities uh, pick up a skill and then produce a product mm. that you're supporting. So I think yeah. as long as you may be conscious of those things in terms of your process, you're not always going to have 100% sustainability or 100% like purely ethically good sort of thing. I think there are some like some little things you have to allow yourself to buy into because there's also a convenience element of yeah, oh, going yeah. to your Maya, I think. Well, yeah, to, be, to play devil's advocate, my thing, my, what I'm sort of going is, all right, well, people are, you know, especially this year, have had it so rough mm. and have been so busy and, you know, still trying to figure out what's going on with life and, and jobs and families and seeing people and not and everything else. So I'm sort of like, I have some sense of sympathy for people who are like, you know, get to the end of the year and to, to make some of these purchases, like you're saying, right. It, it by default requires more effort, right? Like whether it's, it's yeah. you know, doing the research and finding companies that are ethically viable or, um, going up shopping, for example, like, you know, and finding stuff secondhand that you could give. Like, I think there's, there are literally, I reckon gold mines upon gold mines in, in op shops mm. and little, you know, trinket stores and $2 stores, um, which or like, you know, salvo store equivalents, which you could probably, it would probably be great little stocking fillers if you if you sort of do that with your family and friends mm-hmm. or Chris Kringle gifts and stuff like that. But it requires you know a decent amount of time. Like you might even need to commit a whole day to finding stuff, and you still might not find exactly what you think you're looking for. Whilst you can go, like you said, to a Westfield, to a Maya, to a wherever, literally go in there for, for two hours and find pretty much most of the things you're looking for because it's just convenient and it's new so you know people will sort of like that and you know etc etc um so i wish there was like less of a um culture around new stuff Mm -hmm. um because you know claire radborn who was on one of our guests on the on the podcast earlier this year in in real chats I, i know she was telling me how she's doing a thing where she's not um, she's she's not buying any new clothes in 2020. Um, she's always only That's buying big. sort of like yeah. you know uh, secondhand stuff and or making secondhand purchases. Uh, and I feel like it's so to, it's not necessarily taboo, you know what I mean? But it's like maybe like people it's just eat, more people would prefer to have new shit then reuse old stuff um, or re you know, and that's, that's includes like, you know, we're seeing a little bit with Facebook marketplace now, but like even just homewares mm. and stuff at home, like you'd rather buy new shit than have old stuff that's, you know, been used before. Yeah. And I, I, I like that you touch on this culture of gift buying or sometimes like this maybe obligation you feel. And I wonder if maybe there's a bigger piece in the terms of, do we really need to buy gifts all the time sort of thing? Can we mm. exchange those gifts for maybe experiences with people or even just like simple gestures that you have between friends and family to show that you appreciate them? Cause you know, I mean, 
I, people will derive their own meaning from the holiday season, but it's really just a time to come together with people mm. that you love and care about and kind of just take stock for the year and spend some quality time together. Does that really mean you need to sink $200 into a new uh, Blu-ray DVD player? I'd probably say not. And some people might feel that obligation, but I think, um, I think there's a lot of power in asking, like, do you really need to buy gifts? And can you express, like you um, spoke about love languages, can you express that love and gratitude in a different way that's not just a package gift? Yeah, it, it's, it's all time, in my opinion, or at least for me anyways. Like, I think, yeah, I, like I definitely will be trying to spend a little bit more time heading, you know, in the next couple of weeks heading into this this sort of festive season. I feel bad as well for, like, you know, some businesses who have struggled, right, as well, because, like, you want to mm-hmm. support them. Um, but, you know, especially when you're at small business stage, right, and, you know, you don't always have the best practices, right? You're trying to make a product, do it for as cheap as possible and sell it so you can make money. Like, that's business. So, Correct, you know, yeah. some of these businesses might not also have the best ethical practices or, you know, maybe they, they could be a little bit better in one or two spaces. So in the same sense as you want to support them. So, you know, cause of the year that everyone's had and stuff. So it's such a, it's such a, you know, conundrum at times to, you know, figure out who to spend, who to support and who not to support. I think when it comes to these big companies though, the Amazons of the world, there's mm. sort of no excuse. Right. But then again, you're like, fuck, well, it's also so convenient. So maybe I'll turn a blind eye because I know I can get pretty much any product I want in the world delivered to my door from Amazon in, in a week or something. It definitely would have been a good gesture considering the year that we've had if larger brands like Amazon or US Fields came out and quite publicly put forward an initiative to say where, mm. you know, this sale period, we're giving X back to these communities or, with, you know, like, sure, you've made wealth from this pandemic and, and you can't hide that fact. So you've got to acknowledge that fact. Why not? transfer some of that money you're obviously making billions just a little bit of that money back into communities that you've Mm. sort of profited off i think we don't see a lot of that i think we see like maybe very empty gestures sometimes it's like oh we'll give 10 percent on this one particular product that has a very low margin for us yeah yeah, yeah. you know like like, that doesn't sorry it doesn't actually affect or it's like token right it's token they they do it because they're just like all right we'll we'll make a big donation to charity but we Mm -hmm. made you know obviously like to, for anyone to do that, you've got to have made $50 million to donate one or something like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, so, look, I think, yeah, I think it'd be nice to see a little bit more from companies that are profiting here to give back to the communities. But the one thing I maybe want to wrap up with this topic is I did come across a good guide if mm. people want to take advantage of something. Um, it's The Guardian. They do this every year. Um, a good gift guide, which this one has a hundred items. Um, it's been put together by a few of their recurring um, contributors and has everything from um, uh, like one-off donations to selected charities to like those bees, bee wax, oh, yep, yep, yep. Um, to ethical clothing as well. So I think that's something we're going to chuck into mm, our show notes. Definitely. Um, and it does definitely range from very affordable, like $15, 10 pricing um, gifts to something a little bit more luxurious if you do want to splurge for someone and still have that ethical lens to it. Um, so look, with a hundred items, I think you will probably find a gift if you haven't yet purchased gifts for your loved ones. <laughs> There'll definitely be some in there, I'm sure, no doubt. I mean, look, at the end of the day, whatever you can, whatever means you can afford and, you know, whether it's even if you can't afford gifts, like, you know, maybe mm. go about the next the next level of, of making it personal and, and giving a nice gesture or, 
uh, you know, just fucking giving someone a hug. Like, honestly, like yeah. this, this year has been r- brutal. So <laughs> I feel like, you know, simple gestures and, and, and smart loving gestures probably going to be worth a lot this year. So we'll definitely keep chuck that in the show notes. But Scotty, we've just about run out of time for this week. Only a couple of episodes left for, for mm. 2020. And, and one of them will be a bit of a review show, I'm sure. Um, as we didn't mention at the start, we did do an Arias competition, which technically, Scotty, you've gone down again oh, for the man. record. But that's the reason why we didn't mention it. Yeah, <laughs> from it, it will come some some good some good news, some festive news, which we'll announce probably next week. I'm going to say we've got a lot of announcements this week, so mm-hmm. we don't bombard you. So keep an eye out for that. As per usual, follow us on all our regular social channels at Trends and Tings on Instagram and Twitter, Trends and Tings Podcast Crew on Facebook as well. Thanks so much for being with us this week. Thanks, Scotty, and we'll catch you on the next one. See you, everyone.